Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. We have 500 days to avoid climate chaos. Very important issue, issue of uh, uh, climate change, climate chaos, and we had, as I said, we had 500 days to avoid climate chaos. And I know that President Obama and John Kerry himself are uh, committed uh, uh, on, on this subject and uh, I'm sure that uh, for them with uh, a lot of other friends uh, we should be able to reach um, uh, a success in this very important matter. John? Temperature readings have been manipulated at the primary climate data centers in the United States in order to support the global warming agenda. Now, that's a strong news statement that's never been said on television before. But I want to emphasize it. After a 1,000 hours or more of research, a computer programmer and a certified consulting meteorologist found that temperature data has been manipulated at U.S. government climate centers. The altered temperatures seem designed to support the global warming agenda. This is breaking news. The two key centers involved are the National Climate Data Center at Asheville, North Carolina, and the NASA Goddard Institute of Space Studies at Columbia University in New York City. Here's what this means. When you see a news report that the government has found that a certain month or season of the year was the warmest in history, or that five of the warmest years on record were in the last decade, don't believe it. Those reports are based on manipulated data. This information from the U.S. parallels what we learned in late November from the huge leak at the East Angola University Climate Center in England. There are four key revelations about the U.S. data centers. First, the computer programs used at those centers to calculate world temperature averages have been dramatically altered so that the final computer product no longer averages actual temperatures from actual locations. Instead, those researchers are pulling numbers from locations which may be hundreds of miles away and applying them to that area. Secondly, the number of weather observation points has been dramatically reduced from about 6,000 to only about 1,000. Third, the vast majority of the weather stations that were eliminated were those in cooler locations at higher latitudes and elevations. And fourth, the temperatures themselves are being altered by so-called homogenization, a process that seems to always result in warmer output readings. 
So who are the men behind these stunning discoveries? E. Michael Smith, a computer programmer from San Jose, California, and certified consulting meteorologist Joseph DeLeo from Hudson, New Hampshire. Michael, you apparently have really discovered some significant problems with the American temperature data set, the one that our U.S. government uses to proclaim that this month or this year is the first or fifth warmest in all history. Are you telling me that those proclamations are based on bad data? Yes, largely because the cold thermometers have been removed from the temperature data series. I don't exactly understand, but I want to begin <laughs> with, why did you get interested in this issue to start with? Well, I had been looking at the global warming issue and thought it, it should be looked at to find out why it was happening. The more I looked, the more I found out it wasn't happening. When I looked in the data, I found a pattern of deletion of thermometers that was surprising, to say the least. What do you mean by that? Uh, in the, at the peak, there were about 6,000 thermometers in the data series, and then around 89 to, 1989 to 1990, it suddenly plummeted to around 1,500. So let's, let's clear this up now. You're talking about around the entire globe of the world, planet Earth, there were about 6,000 points where they were measuring the temperature and reporting it, and it was going into this data set. That's correct. And this was around 1970. And you're saying by 1990 they'd stopped taking the temperature in most of those places? You only had 1,500 left? Well, in most of those places, someone was still measuring the temperature. You still had people in, in China and the United States thinking they're taking the temperature. But when that temperature measurement went to the NCDC, National Climate Data Center, they dropped it from the data set. So the global historic climate data set, what everyone uses for these maps, the data flows in, but it never flows out. So now we have data sets in the 1990s based on, let's say, 1,500 temperatures and previous years on 6,000. And were they comparing one to the other? Yes, the, the baseline... Those, that's apples and oranges, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I think it's worse than apples and oranges, but that's the metaphor. Uh, they were comparing a period from 1950 to 1980 where they had thermometers in cold places with a current set of temperatures where they had deleted the thermometers from the cold places. Now, wait a minute. Not only did they delete, but they deleted in a pattern? Yes. So, for example, in California, in the GHCN data set, there are four surviving thermometers, one at San Francisco Airport and three down near L.A. How do you measure the snowy Sierra Nevadas when your thermometer is on the beach in San Diego? Or the temperature in Fresno, Bakersfield, or Death Valley? Or any of them. No. They simply do not exist in the data set. And is this they true all around the world? They exist in the baseline, but they don't exist in the current temperatures. And, yes, it's true around the world. One of the more startling ones I ran into is Bolivia. There's a wonderful baseline for Bolivia, a very high mountainous country, right up until 1990 when the data ends. And if you look on the November 2009 anomaly map, you'll see a very red, rosy, hot Bolivia. How do you get a hot Bolivia when you haven't measured the temperature for 20 years? Well, how do you? They take the temperature from places up to 1,200 kilometers away and copy it in. They fill in with what they've got, and what they've got is the beach in Peru and the Amazon jungle. Now, you're telling me that they've cut off temperatures. Let's say the Northwest Territory, northern Canada, have those yes. dropped out of the data set? There is no longer any surviving thermometer in 
the Northwest Territories, or Yukon. Those are filled in from somewhere else, which, because there's none in the Arctic either, has to be somewhere more southerly or closer to the ocean where it's warmer. I now turn to Joe DeLeo, and I need to tell you that Joe and I are friends and colleagues. We have a long relationship. Joe helped with my forecasting when I was on Good Morning America back in the 1970s. Then he was my director of meteorology at the Weather Channel. Joe says he was not surprised at what E. Michael Smith discovered. Uh, increasingly in recent years, there's been a discrepancy that's uh, grown between the satellite assessment of global temperatures and the land-based assessment. For example, in June of this year, uh, the National Centers announced that it was the second warmest June in 130 years for the planet. Well, the satellite told us it was the 14th or 15th coldest year in 31 years that they've been keeping records. Obviously, both can't be true. You're talking about points on the planet where there are thermometers, where the thermometer is read and that is put into the computer network and becomes part of the database. Those are observation stations. You're saying that around planet Earth, 6,000 of them were going into the database in the 70s, and that has been reduced uh, by over 75% down to 1,000. Right. Why has that been done? Uh, we can only surmise that it was done to, uh, to show more warming uh, because of the way it was done, country by country. I would like, if you could, to take a U.S. state. Let's take California as an example. It has coastline, has the Central Valley, has the big Sierra mountain range, and uh, certainly highly diverse weather from one of those uh, regions to the others. In California, and in fact for the rest of the world too, they seem to have a disdain for mountains. Are we comparing this data from this 1,000 stations with the data from the 6,000, or did they go back and recalculate all the old data? No, unfortunately what, what they've done uh, is they, they did their average based on the, uh, the old network, which with all its cold stations, and they're, they're, they're taking only the current data and comparing that to the averages from, from before and ensuring that you're going to find warning. Joe, this is the United States government. How yes. can they do this? <laughs> we ask ourselves that question every day. How, how can they do this? How can the Hadley Center do this? How can the NASA uh, uh, Center uh, allow this to happen? Uh, follow the money, I guess, is the answer. Are you saying to us that if we hear a pronouncement from the National Data Climate Center, from the National Weather Service, from NOAA, all part of our United States federal government, that 2009 was, let's say, the fifth warmest year in history or something of that sort, that it is based on manipulated data? Absolutely. Now, about this homogenization manipulation, in order to supposedly adjust for new thermometers and other changes in the observation points, the data center has come up with a formula to adjust the output temperatures. But Smith and DeLeo's examination shows that that always seems to produce a warming effect. John? There's something in these pictures you can't see. It's essential to life. We breathe it out. Plants breathe it in. It comes from animal life, the ocean, the earth, and the fuel we find in it. 
carbon dioxide, CO2. The fuels that produce CO2 have freed us from a world of backbreaking labor, lighting up our lives, allowing us to create and move the things we need, the people we love. Now, some politicians want to label carbon dioxide a pollutant. Imagine if they succeed. What would our lives be like then? Carbon dioxide. They call it pollution. We call it life. We're going back in time now, 650,000 years. Here's what the temperature has been on our Earth. Now, one thing that kind of jumps out at you is, do, do they ever fit together? <laughs> Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. The relationship is actually very complicated, but there is one relationship that is far more powerful than all the others, and it is this. When there is more carbon dioxide, the temperature gets warmer. Al Gore says the relationship between temperature and CO2 is complicated, but he doesn't say what those complications are. In fact, there was something very important in the ice core data that he failed to mention. Professor Ian Clark is a leading Arctic paleoclimatologist who looks back into the Earth's temperature record tens of millions of years. When we look at uh, climate on long scales, we're looking for geological material that actually records climate. If we're to take an ice sample, for example, we use isotopes to reconstruct temperature, but the atmosphere that's imprisoned in that ice, we liberate, and then we look at the CO2 content. Professor Clark and others have indeed discovered, as Al Gore says, a link between carbon dioxide and temperature. But what Al Gore doesn't say is that the link is the wrong way round. So here we're looking at the ice core record from Vostok, and in the red we see temperature going up from early time to later time at a very key interval when we came out of a glaciation. And we see the temperature going up, and then we see the CO2 coming up. CO2 lags behind that increase. It's got an 800-year lag. So temperature is leading CO2 by 800 years. There have now been several major ice core surveys. Every one of them shows the same thing. The temperature rises or falls, and then, after a few hundred years, carbon dioxide follows. But how can it be that higher temperatures lead to more CO2 in the atmosphere? To understand this, we must first restate the obvious point that carbon dioxide is a natural gas produced by all living things. Few things annoy me more than to hear people talking about carbon dioxide as being a pollutant. You're made of carbon dioxide. I'm made of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is how living things grow. What's more, humans are not the main source of carbon dioxide. Humans produce a um, small fraction in the single digits percentage-wise of the CO2 that is produced in the atmosphere. Volcanoes produce more CO2 each year than all the factories and cars and planes and other sources of man-made carbon dioxide put together. More still comes from animals and bacteria, which produce about 150 gigatons of CO2 each year, compared to a mere 6.5 gigatons from humans. An even larger source of CO2 is dying vegetation, from falling leaves, for example, in the autumn. But the biggest source of CO2 by far is the oceans.
I do believe that the truth is is actually slipping out all over the place. And the truth is going to be hitting those who are clueless, smack in their face, and they're not going to know what to do with it. They're going to be afraid of it. They're going to back away from it. So while I'm not great at this, those of you who are handled with kit gloves, those who are just waking up. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Freedom Fighter 2127. Well, it appears as though climate change is a UN-led hoax to create new world order, but it's not by a conspiracy theorist. It's, in fact, by an Australian PM's advisor. The Australian Prime Minister's chief business advisor says that climate change is a ruse led by the UN to create a new world order under the agency's control. The statement coincided with a visit from the UN's top climate change negotiator. Maurice Newman, chairman of the Prime Minister Tony Abbott's Business Advisory Council, said the UN is using false models which show sustained temperature increases because it wants to end democracy and impose authoritarian rule. How are they going to do this? We know this, but this is just more proof that conspiracy theorists aren't nuts. It's a well-kept secret, but 95% of the climate models we are told prove the link between human CO2 emissions and catastrophic global warming have been found. After nearly two decades of temperature status stasis to be an error, he wrote in a, an opinion piece published in the, in the Australian newspaper on Friday without proving evidence. Hey, uh, he's not the only one who was uh, posted in Australia. In fact, so was I. ABC.net.au, Jade Helm 15, Texas Takeover Conspiracy Surfaces Over U.S. Military Exercises. A bizarre conspiracy theory about a military takeover of the U.S. state of Texas has surfaced after the U.S. military announced it would be taking part in a training exercise. The military exercise called Jade Helm 15 will be a two-month operation beginning in July and taking place across seven, seven U.S. states, including Texas. But some online right-wing conspiracy theorists say it's really a plan to invade Texas. A man who calls himself Freedom Fighter 2127 posted his fears on YouTube. My fears, no, they're factual information, actually. Texas will be the first state, according to our military source. These are not just drills. Texas will be the first state to be under martial law, he said. The theories were fueled by a leaked military image of a training camp. It's not leaked. It's not leaked. That's the, that's the biggest thing a lot of people need to understand. It is not leaked. It was um, declassified. Image of a training camp which shows Texas parts of Southern California Marcus hostile. Martial artist, actor, and film producer Chuck Norris this week added weight to online commenters' concerns on U.S. website, news website WND, where he urged Texans not to believe government reassurances. It is simply a military exercise. I think there's something a little more involved than what they're telling us, he wrote. Whether deterrence, display of power, or something more covert or devious, let's not come up. Excuse me. Let's not come with any patronizing nonsense of impotence and simplicity when its origin is in Washington. It's neither overreactionary nor conspiratorial to call into question or ask for transparency. 
about Jade Helm 15 or any other government activity. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has ordered National Guard to monitor the exercise. All right, back to this. That's just kind of interesting. The real agenda is concentrated political authority. Global warming is the hook, excuse me, global warming is the hook, he said, adding that the UN is against capitalism and freedom and wants to create a new world order. 16% of Earth's species at risk of extinction due to climate change. The advisor's inflammatory comments coincided with the visit from the UN climate chief, uh, Christina Figueres, who, by the way, happens to also be the same person. I apologize about my picture. For some reason, it doesn't want to display correctly when I look at it. The elite want you dead as a well-known fact, according to the climate UN chief. People should eat bugs as they begin to depopulate the earth. The audacity of this person to claim the role of God and attempt to curtail the population. Bill Gates and Al Gore seem to have similar views about eugenics and depopulation of the earth, depressing the rate of child mortality, educating girls, empowering, empowering women, and making fertility management ubiquitously available. It's crucial to the future of the human civilization, Gore said at the World Economic Forum last winter. By far the most alarming information yet, about this is a strange prediction that America will have reduced its population from roughly 316 million to 69 million in a mere 10 years. That is a lot of people gone. Where in the world do they go? You can find those there. Uh, here is the Christina Figueres. This is a, a report I've done uh, recently. It's on April 6th. I want to find the actual Daily Caller. Here it is. I want to pull up the actual link so that way you can see where it actually came from. Well, we should eat bugs. We should eat bugs, according to the UN chief. Hang on, it's still loading. Hang on, let's go back to this for a sec here. Okay, so you see it's the same person. According to Newman Figueres, is on record saying democracy is a poor political system for fighting global warming. Communist China, she says, is the best model. China, you're joking me. UN climate chief, we should make every effort to reduce population increases. This is what their whole agenda is. It's called depopulation, eugenics. The UN predicts the global population will number 9 billion people by 2050, a number that makes many environmentalists worry. Climate One founder Greg Dalton pressed Figueres on whether or not she there are policies to reduce the 9 billion to, uh, 25, 2050 estimate. I mean, we all know that we expect 9 billion, right? By 2050, Figueres told Dalton in an interview. So yes, obviously less people would exert less pressure on the natural resources. Indeed, the UN has warned that food and water resources will be stretched thin as the global population booms. How about we do something here? I, I, got, a, I got an idea for this, for this little uh, option. Instead of harvesting the resources as what they are doing and storing them away in underground facilities, it's, it's rumored that there is food stored for a long, long time. But not only that, how about we stop making people dependent on a system and start making them self-dependent? And what I mean by self-dependent, because God comes first, and there is a balance in, the, in this world. And that balance is if we grew our own food, we harvested our own meats, then there would be a lot less of a shortage of food. But according to Christina Figueres, well, she wants us to eat bugs. Insects are everywhere, and they reproduce quickly. And they have high growth and feed conversion rates and a low environmental footprint, the UN reported. So she wants us to eat bugs. 
The UN argued in 2013 that more people should eat insects for protein and help the environment by reducing the demand for traditional meats from cows, chicken, and pigs. No, let me translate that. She wants to save the meats for herself and the elite and tell everybody else they can go eat bugs because we're the slaves. And apparently, we're not the crazy conspiracies, conspiracy theorists anymore. You've got top UN, excuse me, top Australian advisors. There's, I'm not, this isn't the only person who's ever come out and said anything about it. But there have been a lot of others, a lot of others. Okay. Figueres was in Australia to discuss uh, practical climate change action, urging the country to move away from heavily polluting coal production. She also urged Australia to play a, play a leading role at the climate summit in Paris in December. But that call is unlikely to be heeded. During November's G20 meeting in Brisbane, a bot warned that the Paris summit would fail if world leaders decided to prioritize the cutting of carbon emissions over economic growth. Wait, wait, wait hold on here. Um, according to John Kerry and the UN, climate, uh, it might have been the French, uh, it must have been the French, I, I believe, French Prime Minister states that there's going, Foreign Minister states that there's going to be a climate chaos day on the date. He said 500 days, and that, that date adds up to September 24th or 25th. But you're hearing it from multiple different sides that climate change is a freaking hoax. Global warming is a hoax. So what's the, what's the agenda? What's the goal? It's depopulate, excuse me, depopulation and eugenics. That's the goal. And we're seeing it come to fruition. Thank you, James. Good morning, everyone, and thanks very much to the Heartland Institute for inviting me here to present my thoughts on the subject of climate change. First, let me give you a little, first, let me give you a little thumbnail of where I've come from over these many years. This was my home for my first 14 years, a small logging camp on the northwest tip of Vancouver Island in the rainforest by the Pacific. I didn't realize how lucky I was. There's the town today growing up, playing on the tide flats by the salmon spawning streams in the rainforest until I was sent off to Vancouver to boarding school, eventually finding myself at the University of British Columbia studying the life sciences, biology, biochemistry, genetics, a little forestry. And then in the mid-1960s, before the word was known to the general public, I discovered the science of ecology the science of how all things are interrelated and how people are related to them. And in the mid-1960s, at the height of the Vietnam War, the height of the Cold War and the threat of all-out nuclear war, and the growing concern for the environment, I was transformed into a radical environmental activist. <laughs> I can't seem to get it to go that way anymore. I found myself in a church basement with a like-minded group planning a protest voyage against U.S. 
hydrogen bomb testing in Alaska. We proved that a somewhat ragtag-looking bunch, that's me under the P in 71, could sail a leaky old halibut boat across the North Pacific, help galvanize public opposition to the test, and change the course of history. That turned out to be the last hydrogen bomb the United States ever detonated. President Nixon canceled the remaining tests in the series due to the overwhelming opposition we had spearheaded. On our way back from Alaska, we were welcomed into the big house of the Namgis Nation at Alert Bay, near my northern Vancouver Island home, where they made us brothers of the tribe. For this, this began for Greenpeace, the tradition of the warriors of the rainbow. It's after a Cree legend that says one day when the skies are black and the birds fall dead and the waters are poisoned, the people around the world will join together to save the earth. We named our ship the Rainbow Warrior, and I spent the next 15 years full-time on the front lines of the movement around the world. Next, we took on French atmospheric nuclear testing in the South Pacific. France was still detonating hydrogen atomic bombs in the air in the early 70s, sending radiation around the world. They were a little more difficult. It took some years to drive these nuclear tests underground. And as late as 1985, under direct orders from President Mitterrand, French commandos bombed and sank the Rainbow Warrior in Auckland Harbor, killing our photographer. Going back again to the 70s, here I am driving a small rubber boat into the first encounter with the Soviet factory whaling fleet in the North Pacific in 1975. We confronted the whalers, putting ourselves in front of their harpoons and our boats to protect the fleeing whales. This got us on television around the world, bringing the Save the Whales movement into everyone's living room for the first time. Just four years later, factory whaling was banned in the North Pacific and eventually in all the world's oceans. Here I'm sitting on a baby seal off the east coast of Newfoundland to protect it from the hunter's club. I was arrested and hauled off to jail. The seal was clubbed and skinned, but this picture appeared in over 3,000 newspapers around the world the next morning. This and many other direct actions eventually brought changes to the way Canada manages its seal herds. Anyways, by the mid-80s, we'd grown from a church basement into a group with 100 million a year coming in and offices in 20 countries around the world. Presidents and prime ministers now spoke of the environment on a regular basis. But for me, it was time to make a change. I had been against at least three or four things every day of my life for 15 years. I decided it was time to try and figure out what I was in favor of for a change. I made the transition from the politics of confrontation, which is basically about telling people what they should stop doing, to the politics of trying to find consensus about what we should do instead. There is no escaping the fact that seven billion people wake up every morning on this planet with real needs for food, energy, and materials. Sustainability, which for me was the next logical step after environmental activism, is partly about continuing to provide for those needs, maybe even getting a little more food and energy for people in the developing world, while at the same time constantly striving to reduce the negative impact caused by getting the food, energy, and material from the Earth's environment. Anyways, I could go on forever, but that's my story from the early years. Why did I leave Greenpeace after 15 years? When I began with Greenpeace, we had a strong humanitarian orientation to stop all-out nuclear war, to save civilization from destruction. By the time I left 15 years later, that's the peace in Greenpeace, of course. By the time I left 15 years later, Greenpeace had drifted 
into position along with the rest of the movement as characterizing humans as the enemies of the earth. And that was not for me. We are part of nature and from nature. Greenpeace also began to adopt positions I didn't agree with from a scientific point of view. Ban chlorine worldwide became one of the slogans. No matter how much I tried, it didn't matter that I was trying to convince them that chlorine is the most important element for public health and medicine, which it is. Adding it to drinking water is the biggest advance in the history of public health, and 75% of our synthetic pharmaceuticals are chlorine-based chemistry. Anyways, I had to leave because of that. And here, look at them today in the Philippines with a mask on in a parade, golden rice, which could help cure two million kids from dying each year, and they associate it with death in order to scare parents about something that can actually prevent their children from dying by the hundreds of thousands and millions every year. So that's where Greenpeace went, and I didn't want to go there. I'll just tell you about forests for one second because it's the most important thing and it actually has a lot to do with climate. But wood is the most important renewable energy source in the world, it's the most important renewable material resource in the world, and it is the most important sequester of carbon in the world if you're concerned with that. And yet my old friends in Greenpeace are basically against forestry. In other words, opposed to the most important renewable resource in the world. We should be growing more trees and using more wood. Many activists argue we should cut fewer trees and use less wood. But this is the correct environmental point of view. But look at what Greenpeace does to this. Here's what the IPC says. They're actually correct on this, except it takes them 38 bureaucratic words to say it. In the long term, a sustainable forest management strategy aimed at maintaining or increasing forest carbon stocks, that's what they call trees, while producing an annual sustained yield of timber, fiber, or energy from the forest will generate the largest sustained mitigation benefit, means the best thing to do. In other words, they're saying, use trees instead of using steel and concrete wherever you can, and you will reduce energy consumption and you'll be using something renewable. Greenpeace says, the IPCC says the easiest and cheapest way to fight climate change is to, quote, leave trees standing and protect its biodiversity, unquote. When I challenged this, the Greenpeace person said, oh, I didn't mean to put quotes around it, I was just paraphrasing. But that's a lie too. It isn't a paraphrase. What the IPCC is saying is grow more trees and use more wood. Six words. <laughs> of course, there are many opinions about climate change. There is the IPCC, which says, Sorry, well, how did that get there? That must have... Wow, yeah, that got reversed in the translation there somehow. Let's read the second one first. You know it all. It's extremely likely that human influence has been the dominant cause of the observed warming since the mid-20th century. Extremely likely. Does it make it more likely to put the word extremely in front of likely? They say yes. They say that means 99%, because very likely is 90%. 90 and so they put percents along with adjectives that go with likely. What it turns out, actually, is that this is not a scientific word at all, likely. And even in the IPCC report, it says it's an expert judgment in the same paragraph as they say this extremely likely. An expert judgment is not a fact, it is an opinion. This is an opinion, so let them have their opinion. But they should make it clear that it's an opinion. Uh, oh, sorry, back, back up here. 
Whoa. Okay, start over again. Anyways, this is what... Uh, wow, I got too far back, didn't I? There I go. This is what the uh, Global Warming Petition Project, 31,000 scientists and professionals, all from the United States. This isn't even an international list, so so much for your consensus. But I put my faith in the late Michael Crichton, who said, I'm certain there's too much certainty in the world. <laughs> and this is where this hubris comes in, this certainty that they are right comes in. And you cannot say you're certain that you're right when someone who's in authority is saying it's extremely likely. That isn't certainty. Anyways, we all know about this, and from here I'm just going to show you what I show people, because you all mostly know this, but here's how I show it to people. First, yes, CO2 is increasing in the global atmosphere, but let's look at the last billion years of global climate change. I chose the most recent billion years there is actually three and a half more billion years of climate change before this. But we know pretty well that this is what has happened over the last billion. It's generally been warmer than it is today by many degrees Celsius. 22 degrees average global temperature has been the norm. But then there have been four and a half ice ages during this period of time where temperature plummets on average down to 12 degrees, even 10 degrees Celsius global average. Today, the global average temperature is 14.5 degrees Celsius. We are in an ice age called the Pleistocene. That's why both poles are covered in ice. People don't understand that we are in an ice age now. This is an interglacial period within the Pleistocene ice age, and it is generally a cold time in terms of the Earth's history. Why are there 300 million people in the United States and only 30 million people in Canada? One word, cold. Sometimes I think that's why you let us have it. And you, you saw this graph yesterday in a different format, but anyways, it's, it's the most recent 600 million years since modern life emerged during the Cambrian explosion. And it shows very clearly that there's no lockstep correlation between CO2 and global temperature. At times, they seem to be moving in a similar direction. In other words, there seems to be correlation sometimes. But as you know, correlation doesn't prove causation. And you'd need to see a lot more of a lockstep relationship. It seems that temperature is bounded on the top and the bottom, probably by a lot of feedback forces that are creating a maximum and minimum. And we're in one of those minimums right now. Yeah, it shows right there, for example, that now it's 14.5 C and CO2 is about 400, whereas the average over the last 600 million years has been around 2,000, which coincidentally is the optimum CO2 level for plant growth, about four to five times higher than it is today. That's why greenhouse growers purposely put the exhaust from their gas or wood heaters into the greenhouse to increase growth by as much as 100%. So we can look forward to uh, increasing productivity in agriculture from increased CO2, as many of you know. Now, this to me is the graph, if you accept this is true, which it probably is something like true, because it has been warming uh, for the last 100 years or so. The IPCC says that we've been the dominant cause since the mid-20th century. That's 1950. In other words, they do not ascribe the rise in temperature between 1910 and 1940, which you see there, 
to human-caused emissions, because we weren't emitting much back then. They only say it's the part between 1970 and the year 2000 that was caused by humans. Then what caused the rise in temperature between 1910 and 1940? Because it is identical in duration and size, 0.4 degrees over 30 years. They're both the same. It is not logical to be extremely likely that the second one is caused by us and the first one is caused by something else, which they don't really say what it is. So this, to me, demonstrates the logical fallacy of claiming that we are the dominant cause of global warming. Many of you have seen this. There has been no increase in global temperature for 17 years and 10 months and running. And then here is the United States for the last 10 years. The temperature has actually declined by a significant amount. And this, the polar vortex had something to do with this, I think. But no, I forgot, that was warming. That's right, yeah, I shouldn't make that mistake again. And here, of course, is the Arctic sea ice, which has right now is nearly a million square kilometers below its average since 1979, when we first started measuring it from a satellite. We have no idea what the extent of Arctic sea ice was before then, but somehow or other, Amundsen got through there with an eight-horsepower motor and a wooden boat in 1904. And the Canadian ship St. Rock got through there in 1942 or four, both ways back and forth with a small engine without a big icebreaker. So what was it? Who knows what it was like back then during the heat wave of the 1930s into the 40s. And here, of course, is the Southern Ocean, where, uh, where, where if you take the difference between the Antarctic and the Arctic, there is now nearly one million square miles more sea ice than the average since we started measuring it in 1979. And this is the sum total of our knowledge about sea ice. And apparently this is also due to global warming, the, the increasing extent of sea ice in the Antarctic, whereas the decreasing extent of sea ice in the Arctic is also due to global warming. So I get it. Everything is due to global warming. It's funny that our children are not taught logic, they are not taught what the scientific method is, and they are taught that carbon is pollution. Oh, carbon dioxide, sorry. They're told it's carbon now, as if it was soot. This is sea level rise post-glaciation. The rapid rise in sea level all occurred between really 16,000 and 7,000 years ago when the huge two to mile thick uh, low altitude, mid-latitude mid glaciers all disappeared. And since then, it's just been a very slow, gradual rise as more of the ice that was left in high mountains and the poles melts a little more too. You saw this yesterday. This is tropical hurricane energy worldwide. Al Gore knows about this, yet he continues to say that it's going to be a devastation of the earth from massive hurricanes. Uh, no such thing. And of course, you know that this is the longest period in the history of measuring hurricanes since a Category 3 or larger hurricane hit the continental United States. Right now, today, is the longest period we've known. So that one really, and even the IPCC does not subscribe to the belief that extreme weather events are tied to global warming, whether it's human-caused or not. 
they say there is no evidence of an increase in extreme weather events related to the warming that has occurred. And yet, Bill McGibbon and co, Al Gore, the whole bunch of them, perpetuate the idea that every extreme weather event is because of us. This is why we will never be able to predict the future of the climate other than about three days out, as John Coleman, who's coming up soon, will probably tell you he knows. It's because of clouds. Water, the most important greenhouse gas, is the only one that occurs in both liquid and gaseous phases in the atmosphere. And the liquid phase of water and the gaseous phase of water, which we call water vapor, behave in a completely different way with regard to solar energy. Clouds can reflect the sun back, they can hold the heat in, depending on where they are and how thick they are and what computer model can predict the pattern of clouds in the world. It's impossible. That is why we will never be able to predict the future of climate and clouds are the wild card and many people believe that as the earth warms and more water evaporates off the sea, it will be cloudier and wetter and that will reflect more sunlight back. In other words, there will be a negative feedback against the effect of CO2 and that is just as plausible a hypothesis as the fry in hell hypothesis that we keep getting from the alarmists. As a matter of fact, it's probably a more plausible hypothesis. CO2 is the most important nutrient for all life on Earth. Please teach the children this. When we started emitting CO2, it was down to about 260 ppm. Now it's at 400. If it had gone down by the same amount as we've caused it to go up, plants would have started dying because plants start dying at 150 ppm. Below that, and one of the reasons climate has, the CO2 has fluctuated during the glaciation we have had in the last two and a half million years is because when the plants start dying, they emit the CO2 that they hold, the carbon that they hold as CO2, and then it gets better again. And so we've been skipping along on top of this low point for CO2 for a long time now, and it's about time somebody did something about it. <laughs> James Lovelock, the father of the Gaia hypothesis, was an extreme pessimist about climate and said that humans are like a rogue species. He has changed his mind. He realizes that if Gaia is all one great organism, that maybe we're doing her bidding. It's like Carlin said, the reason people came into existence is because the Earth wants plastic. <laughs> and maybe the, people, the reason people came into existence is because the atmosphere wants a little more carbon dioxide for the plants. Who knows? 88% of world energy. I'm just going to do a little bit of energy here, because to, especially to people concerned about human-caused climate change, energy is the flip side of the coin, and global energy policy is what they want to get their hands on, as if there's some kind of dial you can turn somewhere that is going to change the climate. They want to stop this 88% of world energy produced by fossil fuels, and especially the part where oil is involved, where there really aren't many substitutes, because that's transportation getting the food into the stores. Hydroelectric produces 20% of global electricity, the most important and cost-effective source of renewable energy. Greenpeace and the rest of them are against it. They're against wood, the most important renewable 
in the world. They're against hydro, the second most important renewable in the world. And between the two of them on an energy side, it adds up to about 85% of all the renewable energy in the world, and they are against it, even though it's reliable, cost-effective, etc. Three Gorges Dam, Greenpeace succeeded in getting the World Bank to pull the funding from this. Thankfully, we buy enough flat-screen TVs from those guys that they could afford to build it without the World Bank, and they did. It replaces 40 coal-fired power plants. If you're worried about emissions from coal plants, it stops floods from killing thousands of people downstream in bad flood years, and it allows them to irrigate twice as much land. This is a sustainable development. And China, Canada, we up north get 60% of our electricity from hydro, but oh, they're against that. When the oil and coal and gas become scarce, this is what we're going to have to use. There is no question of that in my mind. So let's work on making it even safer than it is, which is already safer than every other major energy technology we have. 21 countries producing 15%. This used nuclear fuel that they want to dump in Nevada is actually one of our most important future energy resources. We know how to do it. Fast neutron reactors. The Russians have two of them running on the Caspian Sea. They just sold two to China last year. This is where we go. But we got lots of coal and oil and gas right now, and it's cheaper than doing this. So maybe it'll take a while. But you know what? In 300 years from there, from now, all of the fission products in there pretty well will be decayed, and then it'll be just the good stuff left. So it won't matter if it takes 300 years before we start using that. But there is 5,000 years worth of nuclear energy in the 50 years worth of waste, so-called, that we've produced. Nuclear and hydro are the only energy sources that can effectively replace fossil fuels if that's what you're worried about. These are too expensive for the grid. Uh, it's a, a sustainability officer on Long Island described solar panels as a wealth-destroying technology. <laughs> Here's a cost-effective use of solar energy to heat water, especially in sunny places. And this is the wind energy going in in the world. It's only rich countries, mainly China in, the, in Asia, and then there's Europe and North America putting all this stuff in. These are things that are going to be left rusting on the ground. Here's what happens with wind energy. One day you have 12,000 megawatts, the next day you got nothing. What do you do on the nothing day? Shut the schools, factories, hospitals, office buildings? Go home? No. You start a coal plant. That's what they're doing in Germany. In Germany, CO2 emissions and coal consumption has increased for the last three years running while they call themselves the greenest energy country on Earth. In the United States, because gas is replacing coal, in some areas, CO2 emissions have gone down steadily for the last five years without any massive government intervention. Greenpeace's fossil fuel dilemma. Their new $32 million ship, they say it's powered by super efficient electric motors and the wind, powered by the wind, as if the wind is powering the super efficient electric motors. Here they are protesting a coal plant being built on the shores of the Netherlands with all these wind farms around it. And Greenpeace says, you should be like us. You should power yourself with the wind. Don't build that coal plant. What's in the basement of that boat? Two big diesel engines. That's how they power the super efficient electric motors. And if the wind isn't blowing, they have to fire them up. Or if it isn't blowing in the direction they want to go that day, 
they have to fire them up. This is called sail assist. And those windmills are wind assist for the coal plant when the wind is blowing. When it isn't, turn on the coal plant, just like Greenpeace turns on their diesel engines. Here's Greenpeace protesting a Russian oil rig with an oil-powered ship saying we must end our addiction to oil. Is this hypocrisy? I think so. Now let me just talk for a moment about something in my country that is being denigrated and demonized around the world, and that is the Canadian oil sands. And here's one of the upgraders there which turns dirty bitumen oil taken off the sand. They are cleaning the sand in the world's largest natural oil spill. <laughs> when the Rocky Mountains heaved up, the oil that was in deep formations flowed out, out into the sands of the, former, of the prairies, which is a former ocean bottom. And there it is near the surface now. But it's got to be cleaned up, just like a gas station when a little fuel leaks out of the tanks underground, you know, makes the oil, oil in the dirt thing. It costs a million bucks to clean one of those up. We're making a profit cleaning up the oil off the sands in Canada. Here's what oil sands mining in Canada looks like. It's a dirty business. It's true, it doesn't look too pretty when you open up the earth to get the sand out. But uh, here's coal mining in the United States, which produces 15 times as much uh, CO2 emissions as the, all of the oil sands in Canada. And I know that they're targeting this down here too, but uh, that there looks like pretty good energy to me. Here's a map, uh, Google Earth, showing the western half of Canada therefore about half the boreal forest of Canada, they say that the oil sands is destroying Canada's boreal forest. You can see it there, barely. It's like a pimple on an elephant. And there's Edmonton, where you can see Edmonton down there too. When are they going to reclaim Edmonton? Or uh, Las Vegas, for example. When are they going to turn this back into a desert ecosystem? Because in the oil sands, every square inch of disturbed land must by law be put back to a native ecosystem as this piece has, as this tailings pond, which looked pretty damn ugly when the operation was going on, but once they finished with that tailings pond, they turned it into a bison pasture run by the First Nations Indian people who live nearby, getting $85 million a year from the oil sands in First Nations contracts. This is all reclaimed mining land and so is this. And as an ecologist and environmentalist for over 40 years of my short life, this is good enough for me and it should be good enough for everybody. Thank you very much for listening to me this morning. You can follow me on Twitter at ecosense.now. I have a big campaign going on golden rice around the world and I think you'll find it of interest. I didn't have time to talk about it today. Uh, and we're talking about all the environmental issues there on EcoSense now, uh, climate change, uh, GMOs, uh, nuclear energy, and all those topics. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. Today is May the 30th, 2007, at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and alanwattsentinel.eu. I have talked before about the think tanks that plan the future, the market, to the marketers, 
the ideas that shape our minds towards a planned future. There are different think tanks to deal with different classes of people. Uh, there are different think tanks which deal with age groups. There are think tanks which deal with gender groups and subcultures. Everyone is marketed to in turn to ensure that the group that you believe you belong to, that which you identify with, will have a propaganda format which you will believe. Therefore, as you grow up, live your life and grow old, regardless of the incredible changes that just seem to happen, and nothing does just seem to happen because everything takes long planning and finance and bureaucracies to get the ideas to the public, you'll accept those ideas as being natural. People that suddenly have ideas sprung upon them and laws and regulations without the build-up and preparation of the mind for those laws to be accepted, the changes to be accepted, normally rebel against it. But if you've been propagandized gradually, so it seems logical that what's being done is a, a logical step, then you passively accept it as being a natural occurrence in the great evolution, as they call it, of things. Think tanks are just like the CIA or MI6 or Mossad or all the, any of the other intelligence agencies. They have a layered strata, a degreed system of need to know, compartmentalization. Those who get up the ladder know what not to ask their superiors. They take it as a given that they will be told if they need to be told and they don't ask questions. That's a prerequisite of the mentality necessary to work in these big organizations. At the top, we have the foundations, the great foundations. In order for all of the think tanks to work in their own specialized area and yet mesh inter, mesh network with the other organizations, you have a pyramid structure where you have just a few and ultimately one big think tank at the top that passes the ideas on to the various organizations that specialize in parts of it. That's why everything comes together worldwide. At the same time, when you see laws being passed, especially now with the environment and so on, they have the same agencies across the whole planet within governments and they have NGO organizations, non-governmental organizations working in concert with it. And then you have the media who give out the same propaganda about the same topics across the planet at the same time. At the top, you'll have clubs like the Club of Rome. The foundations which were set up under the present guise in the 1950s they plan the future. They simply met in Rome. They, they love different places to meet, um, look at the organizations, 
belonging to the United Nations and look at the big places where they meet. They're always the same places where they're saying they sign the big treaties because there's an old history to all of this, an old, old history of empires and ancient empires and present empires. The Club of Rome always looks towards the future and they plan the future and pass on their ideas of world unification and techniques of how to unify the planet, how to designate and why they must designate certain enemies. The think tanks pick up on this and they simply work on it and find ways to market it to the public through education, right from the children, kindergarten, right up through to the adult level at, on television, and insert lots of stuff too in fiction and dramas, little ideas that you start to repeat, little phrases and buzzwords, slogans really, as Lenin called them. One book published by the Club of Rome is called The First Global Revolution, subtitled A Report by the Council of the Club of Rome. The authors were the, the founders, Alexander King and Bertrand Schneider. At least these were the front men, because they're bigger guys behind them. Put out by Pantheon Books, P-A-N-T-H-E-O-N. And this was published in New York. 1991. The ISBN number to order is 0-679-73825-8. This is the first edition I have of this one. On page 104, the chapter is called The Vacuum. The Vacuum. Now listen carefully how they lead up to something. Because persuasion is a propagandic technique. It's an art which was taught in ancient times of rhetoric and logic to bring the listeners along a course of thinking as Plato would do it in his dialogues. And you'll see the techniques there. By ad the adding of certain information, the omission is very important of other parts of information because you want the perception at the very end to be the one that you project to them. These are arts and techniques. The vacuum. Order in society is determined by the cohesion of its members. Until the middle of our century, this was normally ensured by a natural patriotism, a sense of belonging to the community, reinforced by a moral discipline exerted by religion and respect for the state and its leaders, however remote they might be from the people. So you have an admission in there. They've always understood because these characters have archives of previous generations going back into the mists of time. 
and they're telling you a truth here that order is determined by the cohesion of its members, but really enforced by religion and leaders being the dominant minority that always exists at the top of any system. He says, meanwhile, generalized religious faith has evaporated in many countries. Respect for the political process has also faded owing partly to the media, leading to indifference, if not hostility, and partly to the inadequacy of the political parties in facing real problems. Minorities are less and less willing to respect the decisions of the majority. Thus, a vacuum has been created in which both order and objectives in society are being corroded. Today's approach is superficial. It is based on current events and dangers as they are perceived and on crisis government attempts to eliminate symptoms of causes that have not been diagnosed. This is the way we are setting the scene for mankind's encounter with the planet. Very important little statement. This is the way we are setting the scene for mankind's encounter with the planet. We look in vain for wisdom. The opposition between the two ideologies that have dominated the century has collapsed, forming their own vacuum and leaving nothing but crass materialism. Nothing within the governmental system and its decision-making process seems capable of opposing or modifying these trends which raise questions about our common future and indeed about the very survival of the race. Now, the very important, again, the race. You'll find in high, high masonry and theosophy, they talk, they talk about the race, the race. It means a lot more than what it does to the average reader here. We must ask whether these are signs of an individual and collective resignation in face of the vastness of the task facing humanity and the urgent need for action? Or is this a sign of lack of imagination and incapacity to invent new ways and new means which will measure up to the globalization of the problems? The task is indeed formidable, but if we show no sign of accepting its challenge, the people may well panic, lose faith in the leaders, given to fear and offer support to those extremists who know well how to turn popular fear to their own advantage with incendiary charismatic speeches. Now these guys know that because you, they've used these techniques down through the past, they've used the psychopaths of other countries to become leaders, always with the idea that they're on a chessboard to begin with and have planned the end of this charismatic character after they give them a few years of rampage. They understand it because those at the top are psychopaths themselves. It is a law of nature. Now here again, they're always about laws of nature. This is the you see this first occurring in the Rosicrucian manifestos of the fifteen hundreds. It is a law of nature, capital N very important, that any vacuum will be filled and therefore eliminated unless this is physically prevented. Nature, again, capital N, as the saying goes, abhors a vacuum. And people as children of nature, so we're people and children, you see. Whenever you accept that little statement that you're a child, 
we are the children of the world type of thing, you're actually putting yourself in an immature setting, a capacity, therefore you're being subordinate and the exports then roll over your heads and you accept what they say. This is the psychological techniques we're reading here. How then is the vacuum to be eliminated like the black holes of space which suck in everything that approaches the vacuum of society seems to attract the best and the worst at random. We can but hope that the semi-chaos which is now taking over will eventually provide the material for a self-organized system with new possibilities. The system is not yet hopeless, but human wisdom must be marshaled quickly if we are to survive. Now, this is at the fear tactics again, because, and they'll explain why they're using it in their own words, the fear tactics. You must always create fear in the public to get them to go along with your agenda. That's how it works at the top. And yet, remember, this think tank is a top think tank that so comes up with these ideas and puts them out to the other lower think tanks. How simple things were when with Brezhnev, a European leader confided half seriously and half ironically the collapse of communism in the Eastern European countries and the Soviet Union constitutes a major and unsettling factor in this coming turn of the century. The new hands that are to be dealt in the card game of politics are unlikely to be assessed at their true value or their potential consequences evaluated until at least two or three decades have gone by. The implosion of the ideology that dominated the greater part of the 20th century was certainly spectacular, but was by no means the only one. It coincides with the end of the American dream, which lost its credibility with the painful Vietnam War that deeply scarred the collective conscience with the failure of Challenger, Hispanic migration, poverty within plenty, drugs, violence, and AIDS, and the fact that the melting pot no longer works. Having lost its position of unique leadership in the world, a leadership compounded of a generosity laced with Puritan values and a cynicism worthy of the conquerors of the Far West, the American nation is plunged into doubt and facing the temptation so often resisted and no longer possible in the global village of withdrawing into itself. So here's your premise, you see. The American dream is over. We're now in the nightmare. They pick up on Vietnam, which was a setup to begin with, to do exactly what it was meant to do, which was to scar, as he says, the collective conscience. The Hispanic migration was set up a long time ago. It's still funded by the same foundations that these guys belong to and others in the Rockefeller Foundation. And they started writing about that in 1900. They would bring this upon the, the U.S. at the end of the millennium. So they're pointing out really their own handiwork. Although the Challenger one is debatable, although it could have been a, a setup too, who knows. The rest of it was actually planned. AIDS, we know, was made in laboratories, warfare laboratories. 
and even requisition, the congressional requisition of money for it, as well documented to treat a disease which would destroy the immune system. These characters are in and all the things that they then point out to you as being the problems, so that we'll go along with the next part. Most of the poor countries are gradually relinquishing Marxist and socialist incantations in favor of a more concrete and immediate preoccupations such as economic development and the stabilization of their economies. Capitalist and free market economies have found it necessary to make adjustments for them to survive socially, while socialist systems also made adjustments belatedly but did not survive. Only materialism remains today a strong, all-pervading counter-value. The grand political and economic theories which motivated the action of some and aroused the opposition of others appear to have run their course. It is not easy to stimulate universal debate on ideas, but the lack of attempts to do so still further deepens the vacuum. There is pressing need for such debate, and the multitudinous occasions for international encounters with cross-cultural discussions should indicate new and more global thinking. This period of absence of thought and of lack of a common vision, but of what the world of tomorrow will be, but of what we want it to be so that we can shape it, is one source of discouragement and even despair. How simple it was or should have been for France, Great Britain, and their allies to mobilize against their common Nazi enemy. And was it not obvious during the period of the Cold War that the Western nations should accomplish a diplomatic, economic, and technological mobilization against the Soviet Union and the satellite countries? Again, freedom fighters, despite tribal and ideological differences, were able to find unity and strengthen patriotism in the struggle for independence from the common enemy, the colonial power. That's another joke. It would seem that men and women need a common motivation. Now listen carefully. It would seem that men and women need a common motivation, namely a common adversary, to organize and act together. The first time that was mentioned was in a speech by John Dewey. It was taken up by people later on, all the way from, if only there were aliens attacking us or something to unify the planet, yada, yada, yada. Well, here it is again, you see. It would seem that men and women need a common motivation, namely a common adversary to organize and act together. In the vacuum, such as motivations seem to have ceased to exist or have yet to be found. They haven't found it yet. But a joke, yes, they have, and they've been working on it very intently. The need for enemies seems to be a common historical factor. States have striven to overcome domestic failure and internal contradictions by designating external enemies. Now, here's the guys who design wars admitting it. The scapegoat practice is as old as mankind itself. When things become too difficult at home, divert attention by adventure abroad. Bring the divided nation together to face an outside enemy, either a real one or else one invented for the purpose. Now, here's the top think tanks telling you what they do and always have done from the archives, you see. It's interesting. The disappearance of the traditional enemy, the temptation is to designate as scapegoat religious or ethnic minorities whose differences are disturbing. Now, here's the, here's the guys who also push 
integration of ethnic minorities across the world. And they are admitting here that uh, diff the differences are disturbing, so they understand exactly what they're doing as they sit back and watch the chaos. Can we live without enemies? Every state has been so used to classifying its neighbors as friend or foe that the sudden absence of traditional adversaries has left governments and public opinion with a great void. New enemies, therefore, have to be identified. New strategies imagined, imagined, huh? New weapons devised, new weapons devised. Now think of it that, new weapons devised. The new enemies may have changed in nature and location, but they are no less real. They threaten the whole human race and their names are pollution, water shortage, famine, malnutrition, illiteracy, unemployment. However, it appears that awareness of the new enemies is as yet insufficient to elicit world cohesion and solidarity for the fight. Also, the collapse of the ideologies has removed some of the necessary points of reference. So here's the characters telling you the plan here. You see? Two axes of reference have made possible political evolution that has shaken the world these last years and led to the downfall of many dictatorships. These are human rights and democracy. We shall analyze their strengths and limitations. The concept of human rights has been, during the past decade, a factor of mobilization that became effective through its dissemination by the media and by word of mouth in the countries where those rights were disregarded and denied. When freedom was widely enjoyed in other countries, how could the people be divided of it indefinitely? This is especially the case in countries such as Poland or Brazil, where the Catholic Church, an ardent protagonist and supporter of human rights, was strong. In some of the most totalitarian of countries, aspirations of freedom have been achieved as if the pressure of values has reached a yield point and the lid suddenly blew off the pot. Through various processes and with the painful cost of civil struggle, death and imprisonment, this thirst for freedom was expressed around men such as, as different as Martin Luther King, Lech Walesa, Vaclav Havel, Don Helder, Kamara, or Nelson Mandela, just as in earlier years Mahatma Gandhi had paved the way. But freedom alone cannot reorganize a state, write a constitution, create a market and economic growth, rebuild industry and agriculture, or build a new social structure. It is a necessary and noble inspiration, but is far from being an operating manual for a new government. This is why the concept of human rights simply initiates but cannot implement the process of democratization. This is where the question must be raised, what democracy and for what purposes? The old democracies have functioned reasonably well over the last 200 years, but they appear now to be in a phase of complacent stagnation with little evidence of real leadership and innovation. It is to be hoped with the newfound enthusiasm for democracy in the liberated countries today that people will not reproduce slavish copies of existing models that are unable to meet contemporary needs.
Let me go on about the limits of democracy. Democracy is not a panacea. It cannot organize everything and it is unaware of its own limits. These facts must be faced squarely. The Dalmatians are usually facing squarely. Sacrilegious, although this may sound, as now practiced, democracy is no longer well suited for the tasks ahead. The complexity and the technical nature of many of today's problems do not always allow elected representatives to make competent decisions at the right time. Few politicians in office are sufficiently aware of the global nature of the problems in front of them and have little of any awareness of the interactions between the problems. Generally speaking, informed discussion on the main political, economic and social issues takes place on radio and television rather than in Parliament to the detriment of the latter. Political party activities are so intensely focused on election deadlines and party rivalries that they end up weakening the democracy they're supposed to serve. Old idea, in fact, this is all debated before they updated the democracies into its current state. Winston Churchill discussed this in the early 1900s with some friends and um, a high-level bureaucrat wrote a book called The Whispering Gallery. Well, worth reading we read about the statements of what they then called democracy, how they saw it then from the least point of view. Democracy and the meaning of democracy keeps changing and people don't realize that. You're born into your own time. You've been given a definition for your time, not realizing that it's constantly changing. Democracy in Britain in the 1700s or 1800s meant that the wealthy elite ruled the system on behalf of the commoners in the House of Commons. Now it's just lawyers who want to get up the ladder. Some of them are already multi-millionaires on all sides, all parties. So which bunch of multi-millionaire lawyers do you want to vote for? That's what it boils down to. And Carl Quigley remembers talks about a certain amount of competition being allowed at the lower levels of politics, but however, the ones at the top and all parties all belong, they belong to the same club. It comes from foreign relations, rather than Institute of International Affairs, same club. This confrontational approach gives an impression that party needs come before national interest. Strategies and tactics seem more important than the objectives, and often a constituency is neglected as soon as it is conquered. The current mode of operation, Western democracies are seeing their formal role decline and public opinion drifting away from elected representatives. However, the crisis in the contemporary democratic system must not be allowed to serve as an excuse for rejecting democracy as such. In the countries now opening up to freedom, now the words they're using to freedom. Where have you heard this? is before Bush gave his speeches on the new freedom and all this kind of stuff. This is all marketed from think tanks such as this down to all the rest, including the advisors who then parted off the presidents who parted to us. Little slogans. Democracy is being introduced in a situation which demands of the citizens greatly changed attitudes and patterns of behavior. Bear read that and understand that. Demands of the citizens greatly changed attitudes and patterns of behavior. 
the inevitable problems of phasing in democracy are difficult, but there is another still more serious question. Democracy does not necessarily build the bridge, not building bridges because they're builders, between a colonial or neocolonial economy or a centralized bureaucratic economy towards a market economy based on competition and producing growth. In a transitional situation such as the present, it means a time of changes, which because of sudden and unforeseen change, like sudden unforeseen change, as they push all this down our throats, has been neither planned nor prepared for the necessary structures, attitudes, market relations, and managerial styles simply do not exist. If such a situation is allowed to go on too long, it is probably probable that democracy will be made to seem responsible for the lagging economy, the scarcity and uncertainties. The very concept of democracy could then be brought into question and allow for the seizure of power by extremists of one brand or the other. Winston Churchill was right when he quipped, democracy is the worst of all systems except for the rest. Yes, yet we must be aware of its erosion, its fragility, and its limitations. When persons say that the things that have to be done to improve our situation are perfectly obvious, they seldom ask, why aren't they done then? And if they do, the answer because we lack the political will or because of habits or short-sightedness or politics, etc., etc. Our inability to indicate how to overcome these sources of inertia and resistance makes it clear that what should be done is not obvious at all. We overlook, psychologically speaking, we deny it. We deny our ignorance and instead say, all we lack is a political will. This is the, what they're trying to say, which is nonsense, because the past was planned just as the future is planned by the same types of think tanks. The crucial need is to revitalize democracy and give it a breath of perspective that will enable it to cope with the evolving global situation. In other words, is this new world we find ourselves in, in governable? The answer is probably not with the existing structures and attitudes. Having gathered the necessary means and wisdom to make decisions on the scale of the world problematic, taking into account the exigencies of our time. There is an increasingly evident contradiction between the urgency of making some decisions and the democratic procedure founded on various dialogues such as parliamentary debate, public debate and negotiations with trade unions or professional organizations. The obvious advantage of this procedure is its achievement of consensus. That's what we're after, consensus. Its disadvantage lies in the time it takes, especially at the international level. Now, here's the crux of the thing, is this guy is leading you up to perception that you're supposed to glean from this or arrive at. And it was put forth by Maggie Thatcher in a speech she gave at Massey Hall, one of many speeches across the world, entitled The New World Order, when she discussed the war that would have to come on religion, especially fundamentalist orthodox religions. She mentioned too at the time that she and many other 
ex-prime ministers, presidents, and dictators, leaders of countries, never leave office. They belong to a higher organization that works behind the scenes, networks with each other, because democracy, you see, is too slow. The public show that we get is too slow. And that's really what they're pushing towards, the need for private organizations of experts, skilled people, to move quickly, more swiftly than democratic debates. And that's what we have today, in fact. We have, we've had them for a long time, in reality. This book here, partly, is to get the public or the think tanks that will implement these ideas and market them to newspapers and journalists to then market it back to us is to get them to go along with this to see the, the reasoning in it, the reasonableness in it, in fact. Time in these matters has acquired a deep ethical content. The costs of delay are monstrous in terms of human life and hardship as well as to resources. The slowness of decision in a democratic system is particularly damaging at the international level. When dictators attack and international policing is required, delays of decisions can be fatal. In other words, sending armies is now policing, you see. It sounds better. The problem then is to invent instruments of governance, governance capable of mastering change without violence and of maintaining a quality of peace which encourages rather than inhibits a state of security, fairness and fulfilling growth for individuals and societies alike. Not only do we have to find better means of governance at national and international levels, but we have also determined the characteristics of a capacity to govern. Global governance in our vocabulary does not imply a global government, but rather the institutions of cooperation, coordination, and common action between durable sovereign states. Now, this is like a preamble in a sense, which is more important because you don't understand the preambles, the definitions of words which they give you. When they're using it in their context, it can mean something different to you. They're giving you the definition that they use at the United Nations here because they run the United Nations. Global governance in our vocabulary does not imply a global government, but rather the institutions of cooperation, coordination, and common action between durable sovereign states. In other words, the system that has been set up and is to be the modus operandi of the future is your public-private corporation. And that really is what the UN, with all of its non-governmental organizations and think tanks and associated foundations, is. It's a form of collective expert government combined, you see. We already have it. It's in place and it's been here for a while. I think it's on to state that people and nations are beginning to agree to take next steps together. However, they're carefully avoiding to agree on why they are agreeing. 
this seems to be happening by practical consensus procedures rather than by formal voting of instructed governmental representatives. Many international functions, especially those requiring the most foresight and operational flexibility, can be carried out through non-governmental arrangements. Now, that's how the Soviet system was run, with non-governmental organizations. This is a new worldwide Soviet, as Gorbachev talked about in his last speech while he was in the Soviet Union as president. In many fields, governments have already come to realize that effective deployment of their most cherished right, their sovereignty, requires that it be pooled with the sovereignty of other nations in order to do things that none of them can do alone. In this sense, cooperation does not mean relinquishing sovereignty, but rather exerting it through joint action instead of losing it or just not using it. Whether on the international scale, at the national level, or that of the corporation, the problem of governance presents itself in new terms. The growing complexity of the world and of its problems makes it necessary to have a complete grasp on tremendous amounts of information before coming to a decision. This immediately calls to account the quality of information for it is under constant danger of rapid obsolescence, possible inaccuracy or outright propaganda. Well, they should know. A second impediment to governance is caused by the increasing size and inertia of large bureaucracies that spread their tentacles around the centers of power and slow down or paralyze both decision-making and implementation. In other words, see, the democracy they're talking about is too slow and cumbersome to do fast business-type-like decisions, and that's what all this pooling of NGOs and foundations and mobility do behind the scenes much more quickly. We'll pay through the nose for it, but we'll, it'll happen. Other crucial impediments consist of the lack of education for competent citizenship, which is world citizenship and inadequate intergenerational understanding. Well, they made sure of that since separated the generations and have been for over 100 years. Yet another difficulty arises from the importance of economy within the administration and its sectoral structures. If the different power centers do not learn to cooperate and instead insist on acting in ignorance or in opposition to one another, the resulting administrative sluggishness can provoke delays that can lead to inefficiency, wrong decisions, and confrontation. So far, governance has operated by treating problems separately and in a vertical mode. Today, the interaction be between problems is such that no single issue can even be approached to say nothing of resolved outside of the framework of the problematic. This in turn demands leaders of a new kind capable of treating problems both horizontally and vertically. The compass and square. In the world that is emerging, decision-making can no longer be the monopoly of governments and their departments, working in, yes, a vacuum. There is need to bring many partners into the process, business and industry, research institutions, scientists, non-governmental organizations, 
and private organizations. Very democratic, isn't it? Very democratic. So that the widest available experience and skill is available. And of course, an enlightened public support. So all you have to do as a member of the public is support all these private organizations. An enlightened public support aware of the new needs and of the possible consequences would be essential. A dynamic world needs an effective nervous system at the grassroots level. We're all nervous right now at the grassroots. We certainly are nervous. Not only to ensure the widest range of inputs, but to make possible the identification of all citizens with a common process of governance. We've all to get brainwashed into it as though it's normal. In the present vacuous situation, lack of identification of people with the processes of society is expressed as indifference, skepticism, or outright rejection of governments and political parties, seen as having little control over the problems of our times. These attitudes are indicated by decreasing rate of participation in elections. Well, they've known all that. In fact, they wrote about that during the so-called Cold War at the beginning of how they would gradually indoctrinate the public into being indifferent to what the ones at the top that really ran government were actually doing. And that's the effect of it. So what they complain about is the system that they had before, the same people had before in place, because it served its purpose at the time. They then use this obsolescence to show you why they must go into the next phase that, again, keeps the same people and families in power. Now listen to this last part as they sum it up in this chapter. Remember going back when they said that great movements, great things that happened in society, in the world, uh, where people worked together towards common causes. Mind you, they gave us the common causes to work for, but they never turned out to be exactly what we thought they were. But those guys that planned it certainly understood it. So so in other words, they can get great things happening without either, as Gorbachev said, a religious movement or something really to believe in that becomes a dogma. That's when we all work together, like communism did, did when the ordinary folk thought we were going to create a utopia, never knowing there were 200 families that moved in at the beginning to take over what became the Soviet Union. And they still run Russia today. So here it is, summing it up. This is what always is meant to lead your mind to coming to their conclusion. The common enemy of humanity is man. It's a beautiful psychopathic ability to double-think. The common enemy of humanity is man. This is the new enemies. You always need enemies to come together, to fight, to work, to strive towards, and to be taxed silly. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea. I'll read that again. In searching, in searching, not in fighting, in searching, for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. Now, for the hard of thinking, I'll repeat that part. 
in search for a new enemy to unite us, we, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like, would fit the bill. That should be chiseled in your stone or painted on your living room walls that you read every day. Because if you forget this, you'll fall for everything else that just comes your way in your lifetime. Continue. In their totality and in their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which demands the solidarity. So the goal is solidarity, like a religious movement, of all peoples. But in designating them as the enemy, we fall into the trap about which we have already warned, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention. And it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. Behavior changes behavior modification, you see. Then they, they sum it up. The real enemy, which they have chosen, remember, to make you believe in, the real enemy, then, is humanity itself. This is the summary of a religion that's been indoctrinated and has been over the years, many years, which will bring in their new idealized society. But we have to believe in it like a religion to make it happen. And you think that your governments are making all these decisions for you. Since the 1960s, massive funding went into preaching the new environmentalism, the Gia worship, the overpopulation, overpopulation, the sky is falling attitudes that were being brought along with. And now you do have a generation that's grown up hearing nothing but this who believe it's all true. Their reality is induced through propaganda and indoctrination and reinforced by further propaganda, ongoing propaganda a term they used in circles at the top back in the 1940s and 30s even. They called it continuing education. That was a coaching term for it, which would confuse to average, but it really meant beginning with early childhood indoctrination at school and furthered down through time with newspapers, magazines, the radio and eventually television to reinforce the original lies until Joe Average and Jane Average thinks it's all real and they behave accordingly. No different 
understand the way religion was used before that. Where you'd run through the forest, terrified of all the demons behind every tree and shadows as the sun would move and cast the shadows. And it would get dark and you'd run into that big church where it's full of light and God was there to dispel all the darkness. Made you feel better and safe and you clung. You clung to the holy men because they could save you. Any reality can be induced. Given time, reinforcement and promulgated from the top down as the ancients talked about in Greece when they discussed this many times in the writings of various philosophers. How many generations have lived, died, fought in wars, had moments of pleasure and masses of misery, never knowing that the reality and their belief system and everything else was given by a small dominant minority with the histories of the ages and the sciences therein. Nothing has changed. Eventually you will see children who will volunteer for sterilization. thinking they're doing the world a great deed. Or they're singled out because they will be told, and this is coming, it's been discussed, written about, and published, that they have defective genes. They might even have an allergy, my, my. And they shouldn't really put that on to another generation of inflicting misery. You'll see the first generation being enhanced, as they call it, that was put forth to the public through fiction again, the Star Trek series and the, the eventual space station one, I don't know what they called it, genetic enhancement. See the movie Gattaca. Good predictive programming. But they will volunteer for sterilization and probably get some benefits, social benefits, if they go ahead and do this. Ultimately, of course, they won't need Humans to breed at the low levels have discussed this and published it too. As Gordon Darwin talked about Charles, he talked about the elite not altering themselves or altering their brains because they must retain survival capabilities and instincts since they will be steering the ship of Earth. As Kessler said, or Kostler, who, by the way, follows so-called leading of the left wing, worked for MI6, declassified now. He said that the, the, the masses of people won't need their survival capabilities because the state will be making their decisions for them. So we're going through just one part of an ongoing process that was ongoing and planned for your parents, the grandparents, and back through time. Masses of people have died, lived and died, never knowing Reality. And that's we're up against those who steal 
our ability to be sentient. They decide what we will be by giving us a scripted version of reality. And they often, in their arrogance, do come out with statements psychopathically because they are psychopaths, you see. Psychopaths have tremendous ego. They'll love to say, well, we really told you, it's just that you didn't listen. And they do tell us, and they chuckle that we don't get it because we cannot imagine people being so evil as to do what they do. That's why they get away with it. They're helped by myriads of bureaucrats who, once again, are conditioned in their little tunnel and they can't think outside of it either. And they will rationalize what they do, no matter what it is. And no matter who suffers. Get the book. Read through it. And you certainly will learn by their own admissions that the reality you've had and the one they're going to give you was designed by them. And of course, them turns out to be Rome and the Jesuits. It's something that Alan Watt never figured out. Amazingly. Which is hard to believe. Oh, by the way, they say that the Earth is billions of years old. I can reassure you that they have no idea how old the Earth is. Probably the most accurate source that we have for the age of the Earth turns out to be the Bible. Alan Watts thinks that the Bible was created by the secret mystery schools, the mystery schools. I'd argue that the mystery schools plays right in the Bible. Could be wrong. I sure hope I'm not. But I'm putting my faith and my belief in the Bible and in Jesus Christ. Not in them, man. As we can see, global warming is a hoax. You're made out of carbon. You need carbon dioxide. In fact, we need lots of it. What are they doing spraying in the sky? Folks, weather wars, psychops, an opportunity to create drought, famine, manipulating the weather, playing gods. It's quite sad. It's quite sad how bad people are. It's quite sad how evil man is. Many, many, many men and women will do anything for a buck for opportunity to be part of the club. But what profits a man? He gains the whole world but loses his own soul. That's what we're dealing with. And yeah, I'm saying once again, contrary to Alan or others around the show. 
get right with Jesus. And also be willing to listen to people and the voices that you haven't heard before. Anyways, <clears throat> looks like i got one more recording to do. Maybe tomorrow. And then I'm going to... I really want to take a break. <clears throat> I've pumped out a lot in the past six months. Seven, eight months now, is it? Eight months, nine months. Anybody who listens to this show should get a PhD in reality. So. <laughs> Not because there's anything special about me, but it's just... Obviously, I've been driven to do something that I never, ever did before in my life. And hopefully, somebody who listen to this so I won't have to wait until they're almost a half a century to figure it out. <clears throat> now, I wish I had the answers to make your life easier. I don't. I was having faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Really. Really. And reading reading the Bible. Anyways, God bless, take care. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.